Good morning, everybody. Yeah, I need, need a little volume to compete with you guys. You guys are happy to see each other. It's really good to see you guys. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church. Thank you so much for joining us in worship this morning. Before we get going into the sermon, got a couple of announcements. Um, first is in a couple weeks, so Saturday, August 13th, is the start of Portico U, and then that is just meeting once on Saturday for a special introduction, and then Monday evenings for nine weeks after that, um, we're going to be actually walking through the book. So please register and join us for that. You can register for it online. You can also swing by the hospitality desk this morning, and Kyle and Haley can get you registered as well. Second is there is a Portico Kids Volunteer Training that is coming up on August 20th, also a Saturday. From 10 to 11, child care is provided for that. So if you are either serving on Portico Kids or if you have been considering serving on Portico Kids, um, this is a great time to join the team. It's a great on-ramp to it. Um, you'll kind of get a flavor for what the ministry is all about and get to meet some of the other people who serve on the team. And so please register for that um, and join just to kind of get a flavor for where the ministry is headed and how we are kind of adapting to our new space a little bit still and then also just the changing seasons of our children. So please join us for that. And then finally, welcome. If you are joining us as a visitor, if you're just in town visiting some friends or family, um, or if you're looking for a church home, we just want to welcome you. Um, and we're so glad to have you this morning. If you want to get more information and more connected to the church, please do see Kyle and Haley Norris. They are our hospitality team this morning, and they will be happy to get you connected. They'll have like a little connect card to fill out for you so that we can send you any information that you're looking for. So welcome. All right, everybody. So we are continuing through the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in it for quite some time. And this morning, we are coming to one of the most difficult passages in the entire book. And so congratulations. You're here for that. Um, but it's actually, I'm actually really excited about it because I think it is something that our church really needs to be encouraged in. Um, and not just our church, but I think kind of the American church as a whole, if we heeded what this, um, what this passage tells us, it would transform how we live. It would transform how we worship. And it would move us beyond kind of a superficial faith into depth, into a faith of substance, into something that is actually transformative for both our own lives, but then also for the world that we inhabit. And so I think it's something that is going to be hard to hear, but something that's really good for us to hear. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. You can turn there, and I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Please pray with me. Father, your word tells us that you discipline the son that you love. And Lord, we stand before you in need of it. God, we hear these words and they trouble us. We hear these words and they call to mind people in our lives. They call to mind the own, our own state before you, Lord. And so God, I ask that you would use this message, that you would use this word to speak to us to call us back again to you, but in a different way, in a, diff- in a way that leads us into a deeper relationship with you, a deeper knowledge of you, in a way that actually transforms us. Lord, that's the work that you have started in us, and we know that you will bring it to completion. And so use this, Lord. Use this word. Use your spirit to bring that about in our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at three things in this passage, um, just kind of walking sequentially through it this morning. The first is that maturity is a must. Maturity is a must. Second, falling is fatal. And third, honing your hope. So maturity is a must, falling is fatal, and then finally, honing your hope. And so when we're going to start talking about maturity, I want to share with you um, one of the most significant experiences during my time in seminary. And it was like my first class, and it was with this wonderful professor um, who was also a pastor. And we were talking about progressive sanctification in the class, so kind of like growing in holiness, becoming more like Christ. And what he was describing in our class I was like, yeah, all of that sounds really good. But if I was honest with myself, I was like, there's a disconnect between my experience of that. And so like um, a 
new student, I raised my hand and asked him about that. And I asked, like, what, what would you say to someone who's having trouble? They believe that progressive sanctification happens, but their experience with it is inconsistent or they don't feel it. <laughs> and he looked at me and he was like, well, it's a maturity issue. It's immature. And then he just moved on. And I was like, oh, I didn't like that answer. Who likes being called immature? But he was absolutely right. And he wasn't doing it in a way of um, kind of like bringing judgment on me. He was doing it in a way of kind of calling me into something more. Of recognizing, yes, if you don't grow, you will stay in that place. And you don't have to. There's something more for you. And so this first section, it really reminded me of that. Because I, I see this pastor, the author is a pastor, and he's writing this. He's probably given it to, in a sermon, but then he's writing it down for the church in all these different cities. And I see the same heart in this instruction. If you remember last week, we were talking about Jesus as the great high priest. And it ends with him um, identifying Jesus as a high priest in the line of Melchizedek. So he's after the order of Melchizedek. And I didn't say anything about that last week because he's not there yet. He wants to be there. It's like he's talking and he looks out and as he mentions Melchizedek's name, he kind of sees people start to like drift off. <laughs> and he's like, man, I want to say, say more about this because it's important, but you're dull of hearing. And so first, he kind of takes a break, and he's going to pick up with Melchizedek and tell us what he wants to tell us about Melchizedek, but not before he kind of primes the pump. Because he recognizes this is not, like, this is not the ABCs. This is advanced grammar of the faith. To reference an obscure priest that's only mentioned a couple of times in the Old Testament it requires some skill. It requires some knowledge. And he kind of is looking out and he's wondering, like, are you ready for this? Do you want it? Do you want to grow more into confidence in who Jesus is? Or are you just satisfied with what you have? And so he kind of goes in and opens this first part up. And he's saying... I know that you know the ABCs. And I want to teach you more. I want to teach you how to turn those ABCs into sentences, into words that have meaning, right? This is kind of like an analogy that we can use. But I'm worried. I'm worried that you still need milk because you're unskilled in the word of righteousness, being unskilled in the word of righteousness is basically like knowing things, but failing to apply it, failing to use it, failing to practice it. And so you might know the basics of Christianity. You might know the basics of the gospel. You might know the information, but then it's kind of like you just know it and it doesn't follow you into your life. And so you're not actually appropriating what you've been given and then it's just knowledge, and you never will grow that way. 
You'll never become skilled with the knowledge that you have if you don't apply it. He says, this solid food is for the mature, which is the entire point of having milk. And this is kind of the image that he's giving that's operating here in this passage is he's using this idea of a baby. When they're first born, they need milk. Their digestive system isn't advanced enough. They don't have teeth, so they can't handle solid food. It would choke them. And so they drink milk, and milk is good. It's essential. It's the only thing that they can digest, and it helps them grow, but they don't stay on milk. They advance. They grow. They mature. They develop. And so just as absurd as it would be to see a grown person who only drinks milk for their dietary needs, that's how absurd it is to see a Christian who is not growing in their faith, who doesn't want to advance beyond the ABCs, but is content and just having kind of a superficial knowledge. Just the basics. Just the bare bones. And he he lists those out, right? So he doesn't just kind of leave us to wonder, like, what are you talking about? He says, here is what I'm talking about. Here's what you're going back to. Again and again and again. You're just saying the alphabet over and over and over. Repentance from dead works and faith. Instructions about cleansing rites. Um receiving the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands and the coming judgment. And so I want to be really clear because I think you can hear those and be like, those don't sound like ABCs. There's actually depth there. And that is true. There is depth there. But the specific way that he's referencing it is the kind of very basic information of it. So in the early church, all of these things would have been new. It would have been a new habit to repent from the dead works of the law and turn and trust Jesus for your salvation. That would have been something new. And so it's not talking about the ongoing work of killing sin, of turning from sin as a Christian and trusting Christ every day. It's not talking about that. He's talking about that initial conversion, that initial experience of committing yourself to Christ and committing yourself to turn from sin. So he's saying you're not actually moving past that. You're stuck there. And then the same thing with instructions about cleansing rites. If you remember back into Acts, this was a huge thing in the early church as the apostles were spreading the message of the gospel. The the synagogues started kind of like saying like, okay, well, what do we do? If we become Christians, do we still need to go through all these rituals? Do we still need to keep these ceremonial aspects of the law? And the Jerusalem council, so these, the um, apostles kind of meet together and they give instructions for how to handle that. And so it's like something that's settled. It's like, yeah, just avoid that. Don't worry about the rest of it. And so it's something that's fairly basic. This is something they've heard over and over. And yet they're still stuck on it. It's like they're arguing with themselves about it. It's like, but do we really need to? It's like, no, just trust it. Just trust it. The laying on of hands, so it's again, that initial receiving of the Holy Spirit and the experience, the power that was accompanying that in the early church. 
And then the coming judgment, the fact that Jesus ascended, but he's coming back. And so these are kind of the ABCs. And if you looked up or are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, you see something happening. This is kind of like the basics that are even expressed in the Apostles' Creed. This is foundational to the Christian faith. It's foundational. So here's what the author is not saying. He's not saying, like, this is just, like, the basics, and then you move on to something better. Instead, he's saying, this is the foundation. But what do you do with a foundation? You build on it. You don't establish a foundation and then just sleep on a concrete slab. No, you build on it. The purpose of the foundation is to build a house. The purpose of these foundational principles of the Christian faith is to build a life of faith. It's not just so that you can receive the bare minimum, receive a get-out-of-jail-free card, and then try and cash it in at the end. And I think in some circles, Christianity is sold like that. Just make a decision for Christ, and you're good to go. Just today, say a prayer, and you're good to go. Jesus will give you everything. He'll forgive you of all your sins. But nobody ever hears that you save your life by losing it. That you receive the life of Christ by dying to yourself. And so I think that there is something here for us in understanding this as a foundation, not as the only thing that we need, but as the thing that allows us to build a life of faith. I want to read you something that um, came from another one of my professors, something he wrote, that um, he's reflecting on the, the tricky aspect of passing on the faith from one generation to another. And he's reflecting on specifically how that is going in America and why maybe we're having problems with it. And I think there's something here for us. I know it resonated with me. He says, Central to the task of transmitting the faith from one generation to the next is the requirement of transmitting it as a whole without addition or subtraction. In my judgment, the modern project of mediating theology often failed precisely in this regard. So what he means by mediating theology is kind of like watering it down, picking parts of it that are palatable to the culture, to the hearer, and then just giving them that and kind of shoving the rest into a closet. So that's what he means by mediating theology. In an effort to to gain a wider and more receptive hearing for the faith among a modern audience, mediating theology distinguished between the kernel or essence of the faith, which was to be preserved, and the husk of the faith, which was to be set aside. The problem with such a strategy is not simply that it threatens to compromise the integrity of the faith, because Scripture tells us to proclaim all of God's wonderful works, not just the works that might be palatable in a given age. The problem is also that it robs a particular generation of the full resources of the faith for addressing humanity's greatest problems and God's given potential. 
He's kind of saying, do it for the children. <laughs> right? If your faith is immature, that's what you'll pass on. That will be your inheritance. And later, towards the end of this section, he wants the, his audience to be imitators. Well, who can they imitate? People who have gone before them. That's why Hebrews 11 is in here. It says, here's a list of people to imitate. So he's encouraging the audience to live a life of faith that's worth imitation. That will actually do the work of passing on the full faith. Not just milk. Yes, milk's part of it. But if all we have is milk, we're going to be anemic spiritually. We're going to be unskilled. We're going to have lives that contradict the things that are contained in our faith. So maturity is a must. He goes on and kind of gives um, a very severe example of what can happen to an immature faith. What can happen? And so we're going to look at falling is fatal in verses 4 through 8. And you're going to notice right away, hopefully, it calls to mind the parable of the sower. Because he's kind of referencing these different types of soil. In this image that he gives us in this passage, he says, there's a type of soil that when the seed hits it, when the rains come on it, it sprouts and bears fruit. It bears a crop. It bears the right kind of fruit. But then there's another kind of soil. It receives the same rain. It receives the same seed. But what grows is thorns and thistles. And so what he's showing is that there are going to be two types of responses to the gospel. Two types of responses to the message of the Christian faith. One is going to bear fruit and the other is going to bear thorns and thistles. And that's important to keep in mind because he is writing this to an audience that is identifying as the church. It's the visible church. It's the members of a church. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that there are people in the visible church who look like they are Christians but then they prove not to be because they fall away, finally. And this is really hard. If you're in a church long enough, you'll have a friend, you'll have somebody that you care about who falls away, who rejects, who rejects Jesus. But we want to be careful here because I want to be very clear about what he is talking about. Because I think that this can hit us, especially if we're kind of like in a vulnerable season, or we just struggle. We don't have a very strong faith. We have a weaker faith. We can hear this and misunderstand precisely what he's talking about. And so I want to give you two examples, two examples that will help us understand who he's talking about, Peter and Judas. What do Peter and Judas share in common? They both betrayed Jesus. They're both disciples. They walked with Jesus. They 
partook in healing people. They cast out demons. They fed people. They worked miracles in the name of Jesus. And then they ultimately betrayed him, both of them. So it seems like they both fell. They both apostatized. They both denied the faith. Because Peter did. And Judas did. Three times Peter did. But what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Peter came back. Peter repented. Peter confessed his sins and threw himself at the mercy of his Savior. And Judas persevered in his rejection of Jesus to the bitter end. And this is important for us to hear because as long as you have breath in your lungs, it is not too late to turn back to your Savior, to place yourself back under his mercy. No matter what, no matter what you've done, Peter is a living proof of that. So the author, even though it seems like he's saying, if you do that, there's no hope for you, what he's actually communicating is the danger of going down that route and persevering in it to the end. He's saying that at some point, there is a line, and we don't know where that line is. That's God's knowledge. That's his information. But there is a line where you cross it and you harden your heart, you harden your soul so much against the gospel that you won't come back. And he's warning this church against that. And this church would have had, they would have known people in their congregation who had fallen away, who would say, you know what, this is too much for us. We want to go back to the temple system. We don't really think Jesus is who he said he was. And they denied Christ. It wasn't only this church. The early church faced this all the time because of the persecution that was happening from the Roman Empire. And so one of the things that the Roman Empire would do would they would coerce people through threat of torture and death. They would coerce them to deny Christ. And so there was, the early church handled this in two different ways. And so even for us, this is a question. How do, you, how do you want to handle that? What kind of church do you want to be? There is one group that are called the Donatists, and you haven't heard of them because they didn't make it. <laughs> but they were like, no, you apostatized. You denied Christ, you can't come back. There's no way back. And so pretty soon, they became so obsessed with purity of faith that there was nobody left. Everybody apostatized. But then there's the majority, the historic church. Our forefathers and foremothers in the faith said, you know what? Jesus has paid for your sins. And if you come back to him, he will forgive you. And that turned into a global movement. The power of that grace turned into a global movement. But it's a real warning. 
It's a real warning. And so one of the things that you can't do is you can't hear this and delay obedience. It's too dangerous. You don't know when you're going to hear a warning like this again. You don't know when you are going to come to a scripture that speaks to you, that reminds you, hey, over here, you're straying, you're drifting, you're starting to go down a path in your immaturity that will lead you to denying me. Come back. And notice, too, that we'll get there. But notice, too, that this is in the middle of his treatment of what it means for Jesus to be the high priest. And remember from last week, the priest brings you near to God. So he's saying, knowing Jesus as your high priest gives you all the confidence in the world to come back, to trust him, knowing that Jesus will bring you to God. Knowing that he is interceding for you right now. It's Jesus praying for your repentance empowering your, your repentance, and that he is the mediator between you and God. You have direct access to the Father because of him. And so knowing Jesus as high priest, knowing him as the great high priest, is essential in persevering, in continuing to trust him, because there's no other priest like that. We'll get into that more as, as it continues to unfold. So how do we respond to just this so far? Well, first, remain hopeful in despair, in struggle. Remain hopeful that you have a high priest. You have a way back to God, no matter what. Remain hopeful if you don't feel like you're experiencing your salvation. You don't feel the assurance of your faith. Remain hopeful in that. I want to read to you um, something from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the fourth paragraph um, on the assurance of faith. It's dense, so you probably will want to read it again, <laughs> and you can. Um, if you forget, you can ask me. I'll be happy to, to send it to you. The assurance of true believer, that true believers have of their salvation may be shaken lessened or interrupted for various reasons. From neglecting to persevere in it, from committing some particular sin, which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, from some sudden or strong temptation, or from God's withdrawing the sense of his presence and allowing them to walk in darkness. Nevertheless, they are never completely without God's seed, the life of faith, the love of Christ and of other believers, and the sincere heart and obedient conscience out of which the Spirit may revive this assurance in due time and by which they are in the meantime kept from complete despair. Some of my best friends really struggle with believing that they are saved, with thinking that their faith is enough. They question their faith. They struggle with experiencing God. I've had friends who, for a decade, didn't feel close to God. And I saw that happen. I saw the little ember that was underneath all the ashes be blown again into a fire. We've seen that happen over and over again. So, friend, if that's you, and this is crushing you, persevere. Hang in there. Notice what is with you. 
the love of Christ and of his people, it's not leaving you. And you will feel that again. I can guarantee you that. It's a promise from God. The second thing you can do after remaining hopeful is pull the weeds. Work with Christ, the gardener of your soul, to grow a crop that is pleasing to him. Pull the weeds. Kill sin. Push into the knowledge of Christ. Partner with him in it. Don't run around with a dandelion in your garden and blow all the seeds all over the place. Don't litter the soil with sin, with disbelief. Go to sources that grow, that fertilize your heart, that make it ready to receive the seed of the gospel and the grace of God. And that leads us into our last point, honing your hope. Hone your hope, verses 9 through 12. And you see his heart for his people come back out. He says, though we speak in this way about apostasy, about falling away, being fatal, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This isn't, I, was, I struggle with this. I was talking to a couple people about this. It seems like he just negated everything he said. It's like, so what's the point of the warning, man? Well, the point of the warning is that it's real. And if you've ever known somebody who did deny Christ and is just persevering in that, it's shocking. People who you would never think would deny Christ can deny Christ. But what's also real is the true faith of God's people. And so he's limited. He's a person. He doesn't know. He doesn't know who is truly persevering towards Christ and who's ultimately going to fall away just like the disciples didn't know who was going to ultimately betray Jesus and persevere in that. And so what he's showing them, yes, there's a warning, but also, look at your life. You can be sure of better things. And he gives two things that actually go together. One is the love of the name of God, and the second is serving his people, serving the saints. You demonstrate your love for God when you serve his people. And so one of the ways to hone your hope, to actually grow your assurance, is to serve the people of God as an expression of your love for him. Love God in that way. Do it in response to his love for you. So don't just let the love of Christ that you hear in the gospel message be academic. Don't let it remain in your head. Work it out. Serve other people. Give of yourself. Build them up. Be a teacher. Going back to the very beginning, you should be teachers. You can teach. Be a teacher. Disciple somebody. Share what God has given you. Pass it on. Continue to build your foundation or build on your foundation. You have this stable foundation. The Spirit wants to build with you. God wants to build a mansion of faith on that foundation, and it can hold it, and it's eternal. So build it. Build it by pouring yourself out to God. And then finally, 
follow a good example is at the very end. He says, showing the same earnestness, earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, which is basically what he said at the beginning, you have become sluggish of hearing, dull of hearing, sluggish of hearing. You're lazy when it comes to the word of God. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitate those through faith and patience, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so find somebody to imitate. Be a teacher, but also be taught. Look for someone whose faith is worthy of imitation. And you can find this all over. You can find this in real people, flesh and blood, but you can also find this in Scripture. And I know that we kind of sometimes shy away from looking and reading the Bible as just like a bunch of examples, which, okay, we, we should probably not do that primarily, but we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Hebrews 11 tells us to imitate them to look at the examples of faith in the household of God and imitate them. And so imitate, follow a good example. This is, um, I don't know if this makes you feel uncomfortable. It made me feel uncomfortable as I was reading it. And I realized that um, our particular cultural moment worships peace. We want everywhere we go to be a safe space, probably certainly church. And I agree, but what we can't do is we can't protect ourselves from God's correction. We can't protect ourselves from God having lordship of our lives just to protect how we feel. This hurts to various degrees, being called immature, being warned in this severe of a way, but it's good. It's for our good. And so let's embrace that. Let's actually be a safe space by following our Lord, by obeying him, by surrendering our lives to him. Because that's the call here. The call here is to completely give away your comfort and follow Christ and that's going to be the rest of the book, is he's going to continue to lead us deeper into knowledge. He's going to continue to lead us into deeper experience. And he's going to put his finger continually on things that hurt. But it is a good hurt. And this is the work of God in his church to sanctify us, to wash our minds, and to align our lives with the God that we say we believe in. So let's join God in that. Let's, let's do that. Let go. <laughs> Let go of things that you're protecting. Trust him as you do that. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, Lord, we hear you. <laughs> I hear you. You want so much for us and yet we fight you. I'm reminded even of just being a parent and trying to nourish and provide food that nourishes to children. We reject it. We throw it on the ground. We hide it. We try and run away from it. And so, Lord, I ask that just as those children learn how to receive good food, 
from their parents, that we would learn how to receive from you. That we would not be lazy, that we wouldn't be distracted by other things that we think might be better, but that we would actually allow your scriptures to form us, to shape us, to have authority in our lives, that we would actually apply your word to our lives. And God, I ask that your spirit would be with us as we do that as a church, as we continue to pursue that as your church. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.